Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina, where every week I try to find experts or athletes or authors and get the best scientific information, but translate it into a way that's practical for you, the audience, to implement today, because that's what really counts. And as always, I love to hear from you. Please subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it. Reach out to me, DM me on Instagram or on Facebook. I love to hear your ideas, your questions, your comments. Your positive feedback is nice too. Um, So my guest today, and it's such a treat doing this podcast because I get to talk to so many amazing people that are also very good friends. And my guest today is a very good newer friend. I'm trying to remember how long we've known each other, Taylor, but Dr. Taylor Wallace, you've probably seen him on Dr. Oz because he's been on like a hundred times more than any other person, but goes by America's favorite food scientist, which I love, but he's a, has a PhD in food science and he's going to explain that to you. But Taylor, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here at Sofa. I talk to you all the time, but it's fun to talk to you uh, on the Practically Healthy podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So so tell us, um, what is a food scientist? Most of our audience probably has no idea that th- that exists and then what it actually is. Yeah, you know, I actually have a little uh, joke among my friends. I'm always like, have you ever met a food scientist? And they, of course, say no. And I'm like, see, I'm your favorite. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. That's how, that's 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 good. So actually, there are quite a few food scientists, Um, probably the most famous food scientist, uh, of course, aside from myself, is uh, Clark Griswold from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, If you recall, he worked um, in the food additive space and developed food additives for uh, different companies. So and a majority of food scientists work at food companies. They do new product development. So when you see the new like best line of cereal come out or the latest and greatest uh, innovation, food scientists are really behind that. They also do a lot of research and development. So looking at the health benefits behind foods, uh, how to make foods more functional. For example, my master's degree, we were able to extract uh, plant pigments and use them to color yogurts, which is a really hard matrix to color because it's a a relatively neutral pH. Uh, It's got a lot of protein and things in there that make natural colors really unstable. And so that's an example of what food scientists do on the research and development side. You also see food scientists, and particularly these days, work very heavily in the food safety field. So, you know, we don't just come up with these food additives and things to add into your food because we're evil food scientists. They actually have a functional uh, benefit in the the food product, such as keeping it safe. So if you think about the COVID-19 pandemic right now, there are tons of food scientists that are looking at can COVID-19 be transmitted through food? And if it can in certain foods, then what can we do to prevent that to keep our food supply safe? And so you can think about that from a foodborne illness, uh, like, um, you know, any type of of salmonella or uh, foodborne illness you might develop, or you can think about it from, you know, a viral standpoint and intoxication where something foreign gets uh, inadvertently into the food and how do we mitigate that from actually getting to the consumer? So it's a lot of supply chain things. I mean, if you take McDonald's, for instance, um, any McDonald's could have 
uh, ingredient suppliers coming from 40 different places in the world. So it's making sure that each of those ingredients is safe, is functional, and it, it is providing the benefit to the product. It's a pretty wide variety of, of daily tasks a food scientist, um, you know, enrolls in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't realize it was that expansive um, and that comprehensive. Just real quick, I'm I'm just curious how you got into it. I mean, did you, in school, were you like walking through the lunch line going, I think we could do that better. Or I mean, what, what was the, what was the inspiration? Yeah. Well, so the inspiration actually started with my grandmother and I was one of the very few um, students that entered food science as a freshman in college. I think I've only known a handful of other individuals. Most students don't um, discover food science until late college or and then go for their master's degree. But I was very interested in nutrition. I come from an area in Kentucky that's got a heavy prevalence of obesity and cardiometabolic disease. And it just kind of, you know, hit me that we really aren't successful at changing people's diets. So what can we do to scientifically alter the diet to where people get to consume the foods like yogurt that they love but you add an additional health benefit from those fruits and vegetables that they might not be getting to color that yogurt and provide that health benefit through a matrix that they will consume. So that's kind of the background. I, I cooked with my grandmother growing up. So I've always had this, you know, infatuation for, you know, culinary and, um, you know, being in the kitchen and, and making new products. And it just seemed to kind of naturally flow with my chemistry and biology and nutrition interests. <laughs> That's awesome. For me, I uh, gambled with my grandmother. We played uh, Michigan. So I, I developed, unlike you, we didn't do much cooking in the kitchen, but I developed my love of uh, poker and gambling from her. So I guess we all learn a lot of different things from our grandmothers. So, um, and, and, but, you know, I think there's, it's an interesting field too. I think there's a dichotomy because on the one side, you some might say that you know food science and and I think you're on the the good side the research side and discovering how to make foods better but the the kind of dark side of food science and correct me if I'm wrong is is making you know foods hyper palatable that lead to overconsumption so we read a lot about you know these ultra processed foods would you would you say that's kind of the dark side of food science or is that a different person that does that? Is that a marketing person in the boardroom that is uh, leading that endeavor? Well, you know, new products start with marketing. So marketing comes in and they have a concept and then it's the food scientist's job to go make the concept a reality. Uh, when it comes to developing, you know, highly craveable products, I mean, I think this goes back to the 1940s, 1950s, when the field was really starting to boom. Food science kind of boomed initially as more of a processing and food safety type field. And then the whole sensory application piece came in. And sensory is, is interesting because you can you know, do all these huge sensory panels. And like my best friend has a very low taste threshold. When you're uh, in intro to food science as a freshman, you take a, um, a food chemistry course and they give you all these little um, doses of certain parts per million, parts per trillion, uh, you know, 
flavors and some people can taste them and some people can't. My best friend has a really low taste threshold where she can taste almost any off flavor in a food. I can't taste anything. <laughs> She's one of those people that get to be the food critics uh, because she can taste um, really, really low uh, thresholds of things. And so they give you this and you learn as a food scientist you know, how to manipulate foods, whether that be to make them more craveable or to make them be more healthy. Um, you know, you can do the same thing with things like saturated fat. I always joke about, you know, healthy choice ice cream. Um, it contains a, a compound that's similar to KY jelly. And actually that was developed because the CEO of ConAgra that owns healthy choice ice cream had a heart attack. And he went to his food scientist and said, give me a damn ice cream that I can eat with it without it killing me. And they ended up making healthy choice. And, you know, it's a completely safe compound, but I always joke about, you know, you're kind of eating lube when you. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep that on the DL, except for that. It's going to be, you know, broadcast nationally through the podcast, but so let's get into, you know, I think there's a, we, you know, you and I had talked before this about what some interesting things were. And, and for me, you know, I'm really trying to educate people. And I think there's there's a few areas of, of your research that I think are really, really important to discuss. And and the first is, is magnesium, because I think that, you know, calcium gets all the glory when it comes to minerals and maybe iron um, and that sort of thing. But um, magnesium is really something that you've spent a considerable of time. So just tell us a little bit about that. And I have a lot of questions for you, but let, how'd you get interested in magnesium? Well, you know, first I was a calcium researcher. So I was the chief scientist at the National Osteoporosis Foundation until about 2016 when I started my own research firm. And I was a calcium and bone health person to heart. Uh, still am. I mean, I think calcium is great. Um, but there's this balance of calcium and magnesium that we need in the body. Um, and when magnesium has this, and this is particularly important for immune function and health during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, calcium gets influxed into the cells. Viruses need calcium to replicate and magnesium competes with calcium to go into the cell. So it has this calcium channel blocking effect. And so magnesium actually stimulates the immune system. And part of the reason that it has immunoprotective properties is because it blocks some of that calcium from going in the cell. So uh, as I, you know, kind of grew in research, I started doing a lot more on the magnesium side and surprisingly, and, and I guess in the food space, it's because the dairy industry uh, and calcium supplement industry has funded a lot of research um, and the magnesium, you know, community has not been so well funded because the, you know, primary um, sources of magnesium are dark green leafy vegetables and things we already know we should eat. <laughs> and uh, beans and nuts are good sources too, just for everybody out there. Those are like leafy greens, beans and nuts are some of the top sources, right? Right. So what else does magnesium, it, it's really a fascinating and, and underappreciated mineral. And, and by the way, you know, for those out there that think you don't you shouldn't care. 70% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. Is that I, I read that statistic? Is that is that correct? Or their diets are deficient in magnesium? Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, so there's not a really good blood marker of 
magnesium status. And one of my big projects right now is working to define uh, what is an optimal biomarker of status. Traditionally in the hospital system, we've used serum magnesium levels, which don't really fluctuate. Um, it, it takes a lot for serum magnesium to really um, go down or go up. And it's not really, it doesn't really correlate well with dietary intake. Now it's the same with calcium, right? I mean, yeah, it's the same thing because I, I, serum is blood, people, for those out there who may not be as uh, well-versed scientifically. But um, yeah. yeah, so so am I off on the, uh, but most people don't need enough beans, leafy greens, and, and nuts in the first place. So uh, is that, would you agree with that? Yeah. And so what we've been doing is looking at this marker called a free ionized magnesium because serum magnesium is bound to a protein. And so it's not really useful for anything. So we look at the free form that's available for the body to use. And we've been working a lot with this uh, ionized magnesium level to, to see if we can better characterize deficiency. So we know in critically ill patients that magnesium levels deplete very quickly in the ICU and in the hospital setting. But in normal people, it, it really fluctuates. I mean, we don't get enough uh, leafy greens and nuts and legumes, things like that. But also, you know, with processed foods and, you know, a modern agriculture depleting a lot of the nutrients from our soil, the fruits and vegetables that do have magnesium, the content isn't as high as it was, for instance, in the 1960s. So there's a lot of work to be done. We really don't understand at this point what actually constitutes magnesium deficiency. Um, magnesium deficiency was defined in, in, the, uh, in the late 80s um, from some very old data where they just did a, a bell curve, if you remember from statistics, and they just said the fifth percentile and the 95th percentile were where everybody is and anybody outside of that is too much or too little. <laughs> so it's not based on any clinical endpoint like what we would hope in the clinical setting. Mm. But it seems so important. I know for me, I mean, first of all, it, it does play a role in bone density. There's a synergy, right? You can't just have calcium without magnesium. Is that, and, and among other things, you know, vitamin K and that sort of thing. But, um, and I mean, I, I see it a lot in, in my obesity, you know, diabetes practice in terms of insulin resistance. I think there's been, you know, an association with pre-diabetes, which I find is, you know, very interesting. Or what, what else, what other, I mean, I think people really don't realize it's involved, isn't, magnesium involved in hundreds of biochemical reactions in the body? Yeah, we've identified over 600 um, enzymatic reactions that magnesium acts as a cofactor. And you're right, it's very involved in various cardiometabolic diseases, particularly type 2 diabetes. In fact, if you look back in the literature, the older clinicians from like the 1930s and 1940s will tell you that type 2 diabetes is a magnesium-related condition. And I think as data progress, we're starting to see that again uh, in people. Wow, that's I, I that's cool that they looked on it so far back. So I mean, besides, you know, I think you bring up some really fascinating points, and we have an opportunity to really educate people, which I'm excited about because, you know, you talk about 
the depletion in the soil and deterioration. And I think that's why, just full disclosure, I brought uh, Dr. Taylor on to BLK. You know, I needed a food scientist when we talk about the soil and it being deficient. And uh, But we'll talk about that in another podcast or webinar that we're going to do. But, you know, so I think, you know, magnesium supplementation, what, what are your thoughts on that? There's a lot of different types. I know there's a lot of confusion out there. What should the average person be thinking about? And what might be some signs of, of magnesium deficiency clinically if there's not really a good marker? Because what it sounds like is people really have to take it upon themselves to be kind of an empowered patient and consumer. So talk a little bit about, you know, supplementation versus food and how we can navigate that, um, that arena. Yeah. So, you know, magnesium has several um, I guess, indicators that you might be low. Um, most of those indicators are very similar to those indicators of stress. So increased anxiety, irritability are some of the more beginning stages. And magnesium is very important in neurotransmissions. So extreme deficiency, you know, you can start seeing, you know, issues with the heart um, in uh, less deficient states, you can see muscle cramps, you know, contractions aren't working, you know, correctly. Uh, you get that irritability um, and things that you might think are, you know, neuromuscular related. Um, and constipation, right? So bowels, there can be that, could that be a manifestation too? Yeah. So the, one of the, um, one of the uh, signs that you've got too much magnesium is magnesium supplements in particular have a laxative effect. Now, plant food magnesium does not have that effect. And I've actually been working with a, a great supplement company that has, uh, it's called Remag. They've invented this um, very tiny picometer size magnesium that's similar in size to plant magnesium. And so it doesn't give the laxative effects uh, theoretically. And it's showing some really good results in some of our clinical trials. Um, but yeah, laxative effects are, are a, a result of taking too much magnesium. In fact, when you go to the GI doctor um, and you go get the Miralax, Mira is magnesium. If you go get a colonoscopy, they'll give you a big bottle of Miralax, which is all magnesium, which cleans your system out relatively quick. So is that, is that because it's going to the bowel and causing, because what, what is the small size? It just allows it to enter the cell and work more effectively at lower doses or how do I don't, I'm, this is the first I've heard of it. It's very interesting. Right. Yes. It, it's very new. Um, in fact, I think we're the first ones to do a study on this type of magnesium. The idea that the manufacturer has is that it's so small, it um, can diffuse across membranes much easier. Um, now we don't have any evidence for that, but we have confirmed the picometer size of the magnesium. And we do know that just one dose can raise your blood ionized magnesium levels, which is what we were looking at to, um, you know, have that better indicator of an individual status so that we can actually define what deficiency is <laughs> eventually. So, but it's, it's a complicated area in terms of supplements too, because the bioavailability or how much the body can absorb varies right. widely, like magnesium oxide versus citrate and with a meal or with a not. So what do you tell people as a practical way of, of approaching this? Because I think it's really important, um, you know, for people, I think it's markedly under-recognized, however we define 
deficiency, just knowing the combination of people not eating enough beans and leafy greens and, and nuts are getting more popular at least these days, but, um, and the deterioration of the soil quality. So do we ha- do you have a rule of thumb that you tell people or is there any way that people on their own could figure this out? Yeah, it's really hard. And in fact, I, I wrote a blog um, that was posted this morning on my website, drtaylorwallace.com, because I've been so aggravated that supplement manufacturers are claiming that um, uh, magnesium L3 and 8 is the only one that you know crosses the blood brain barrier and they're calling it brain magnesium, which is incorrect. Magnesium L3 and 8 is a great um, option for a supplement but other forms also, you know, get into the bloodstream and cross the blood brain barrier. When it comes to the form of magnesium, uh, you have to take into consideration a couple of things. One, magnesium oxide is the least bioavailable of the uh, magnesium salts. It's also the most common magnesium form on the market. So if you go into CBS or a Walgreens or a Rite Aid, uh, and you look on the back of the supplement facts panel, 90% of the uh, supplements are magnesium oxide, and it has a very low absorption rate. It's just basically you're pooping it out the other end, um, and it doesn't get absorbed. Magnesium citrate and magnesium chloride are much more highly absorbed, as is uh, magnesium l 3 um, which is more expensive than the other two. Citrate and chloride are, are a little bit less expensive. Um, so I take magnesium chloride um, just because it's, uh, you know, it's cheap, it's available on Amazon, um, you know, and I can get it right to my house. You know, I'm like one of those millennials that has to have everything delivered <laughs> to me like next day or I'm mad. <laughs> so uh, I choose magnesium chloride, um, but citrate is fine as well. Um, there, and, you know, the other thing that I've noticed that, that supplement manufacturers do is on the front of the label, you'll see, you know, contains a thousand milligrams of magnesium chloride. Well, then when you look on the supplement facts panel and you see magnesium, it really only has 150 milligrams of magnesium. The rest is the salt form. So you really have to be a savvy consumer and kind of watch um, some of these supplement companies. And, you know, I always say ignore the front of the label because most of it's marketing claims. Uh, and just go straight to the nutrition facts panel or the supplement facts panel in, in this instance and, you know, make sure you, you, you know what you're taking. And you, you are definitely an expert in supplements. You're the editor of the uh, Journal of Dietary Supplements. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. Um, right. So I know people are probably listening to this and going like, she's getting too deep into the science, but we're going to, the next nutrient we're going to talk about, you've probably never heard of, or very rarely. I think it's really interesting and we, we don't have too much time, but I think it's definitely worth discussing. The other one that you felt really strongly about is choline. So tell us a little bit about that and, and um, why you think it's important and why we need it. Should we be supplementing with it? Where do we get it? Let's talk, uh, let's talk nerd talk about choline now. <laughs> yeah. So choline is this really cool vitamin that for decades was not studied whatsoever. And we've only recognized choline as a quote, essential nutrient since 1998. And there are very few clinical trials Ours are some of the the larger studies uh, on choline currently, but it's the precursor to a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is really important in brain development, particularly 
from conception through the first thousand days of life in a young child. And it's also important for cognitive maintenance later in life when you think about when you start to develop cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, uh, those different states. Uh, choline seems to have uh, a real protective effect if you've consumed it across the lifespan. Now, again, our data back in 2013, 2013, 2012, was the first to show 90% of Americans don't get the recommended intake of choline and 92% of pregnant women don't get the recommended intake. Choline is very much like calcium. It's big and bulky. So you can't just put it in a prenatal vitamin and have one pill. You have to, it has to have its own pill like calcium or magnesium. Um, and, you know, it's again, really important in brain development. In fact, we have a large randomized control trial of 1200 severely malnourished infants uh, that are uh, at very high risk of cognitive impairment in Guatemala. It's a indigenous Mayan population. And we're looking at the effect of one egg per day. Eggs are the predominant source of choline. The egg yolk provides a, a substantial amount of choline. So we're looking at providing these six month old infants with one egg a day for six months. And we'll be looking to see how that affects their cognitive uh, development and progression uh, for you know years out. So it's a, it's a really neat nutrient that not a lot of people know about. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. It's kind of one of the adverse side effects of the that people don't realize of the low fat craze because people started eating only egg whites and not the whole egg, and may have inadvertently, you know. But I think it's also correct me if I'm wrong. It's also involved uh, with you know fertility in in men with a sperm function and, and and muscle function. I know I was you know there's this is one of the interesting areas where I think genetics plays a role and there's a small percentage of the population that has problems metabolizing choline that may need higher amounts. I read that 10% of people, it may, it may affect muscle function and, and fertility and that sort of thing. I, I don't know why I just read it. Is that something that you you've come across in your research or that you're looking at? Well, so choline is involved in cell membranes and it's involved in how our cells communicate with one another. And so it makes it really important for all different types of cells in the body. Um, now, in regard to um, you know, its, its effects on health, the deficiency in choline, you see an increase in liver fat um, because choline is involved in the lipids that move fat out of the liver and out of your system. Uh, so um, you know, if you're deficient in choline, you're not doing that. What's interesting, yes, like you indicated, and it's not a small subset of the population, there's actually data showing that 44% of premenopausal women in the U.S. have genetic abnormalities to where they don't, um, where their requirement might be higher. So you produce a small amount of choline um, in your body. Uh, your body naturally produces it, but it's not enough to fulfill the human requirement. And choline in women um, is driven by estrogen levels. So when you're pregnant, estrogen levels are 60 times the level they are in a non-pregnant woman. And so choline levels skyrocket too. Unless you're one of those 44% of premenopausal women that have these certain genetic um, mutations where your body's not producing it and therefore your dietary requirement uh, increases quite substantially. And that's some of the research that 
we're currently doing right now um, and, and hoping to uh, publish within the next three to four months. So it sounds like for the majority of us perimenopausal women, uh, we, 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 I, I'm not a big egg eater. So now I'm thinking, you know, that I, I really, should I be consider, considering supplementation? Does it exist in an average women's multivitamin? Are there other food sources? Give us some practical tips on that because I need this. I, I want to preserve my brain function because God knows the wine is probably doing a lot of damage. So I need to protect it any way I can. You know, I haven't seen choline in uh, in supermarkets, and every now and then you see it. It is available on Amazon and you know online and some of your bigger retail outlets, and it's relatively cheap. Your multivitamins will contain fairly negligible amount uh, amounts of choline, less than ten percent of the recommended intake, because again, it's bulky, so it needs its own pill. Eggs are the number one source, or egg yolks are the number one source in the U.S. diet. Um, the other good sources are fatty fish. Shrimp is a very uh, good source of, of choline. And then again, it's all animal derived products. Um, intake in the U.S. is driven by eggs, seafood, uh, meat and dairy. And meat and dairy have smaller amounts, but they're more widely consumed uh, than eggs and fish. So it, it, it drives intakes. If you're a vegetarian, it's almost impossible to get um, enough choline. So you would need a supplement. Brussels sprouts, I think, are one of the vegetables that stand out um, as having higher amounts of choline. And it's just under 10% of the daily value per serving of Brussels sprouts. Oh, wow. So it's predominantly in animal derived foods. It's like vitamin B12. There's not a lot of uh, foods with choline and it's not fortified in a lot of products right now. Well, that's interesting because you never hear about it with vegetarian diets. You hear about B12 and iron, um, but it seems like choline should really be included in that. And it sounds like I need, although when you say fatty fish, so salmon would have what percent of the RDA? Is that one of them that's high in choline? Um, you know, I'd have to go back and look exactly what salmon has in there. Um, but I, I would say it's the RDA for um Women is 450 milligrams per day. For men, it's 550 milligrams per day. And that just is because of the differences in body size in the average male and female. Um, it's seven milligrams per kilogram of body weight is how it's, it's calculated. Um, and average intake in the U.S. is um, a little uh, around uh, 350 milligrams per day, but it's less than 200 milligrams per day in vegetarians and in vegans, it's even lower. It's more like 125, you know, milligrams per day. Now there is some choline that goes unaccounted for in processed foods because processed foods uh, contain lecithin, which is derived from eggs and it's used to um, emulsify or bring water and oil together in products like um, peanut butter and ice cream. Um, and so it's, it's natural, but it, it's, it, it's, it contains choline. So it's not necessarily accounted for in all foods. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. That, that, this one, I, I didn't realize it was so important as we aged too. So I think this is something that's going to probably change my behavior. So we don't have a lot of time left, but, um, I think you bring up a really interesting point and, and I know you're pretty passionate about this. I mean, and, and I probably am guilty of this sometimes, too, of really villainizing processed food. And, and um, because 
I find sometimes the simpler message is the easier and that foods in their whole form are are generally going to be better for you. But just to give us a few examples of really, you know, beneficial aspects of food processing where, you know, obviously ultra processed food where it doesn't even resemble anything close to food and has everything added in is, is not a great idea. But give us some of the better examples of processed food, just so people, you know, maybe don't jump to conclusions. And again, I'm, I'm guilty of that, even though I eat it processed food, but I, I probably villainize it a little too much. Right. Well, you know, what comes to mind right away is um, fortification. So iodized salt, I mean, if you were around in the early 1900s, you would have had the opportunity to experience somebody you know that had a goiter, <laughs> I mean, so, which aren't apparent anymore because of iodized salt. You know, people like to buy Himalayan sea salts and all these novel salts because for some reason they think it's healthier. Um, and those aren't iodized and salt and processed food is not iodized either because it will oxidize the product. So the salt shaker is really, uh, if you're not eating seafood, the number one source of iodine in the U.S. diet. Uh, other examples would be um, bread. Uh, refined grains are, have been fortified with, you know, iron, the B vitamins, um, and in the early 90s, folic acid, which has been overwhelmingly successful at preventing neural tube defects uh, in infants, uh, in pregnant women. Uh, and so those are two examples, a heavy for, or I guess even an ultra processed food, you could consider yogurt um, is a great source of calcium and probiotics and all these different nutrients. So, um, you know, I, I, Tamar Haspel at the Washington Post said something really interesting to me because as food scientists, we always fight against the processed food thing. It's not processed foods. And Tamar always says, the issue is not food processing. The issue is in the foods that are processed, because like you said, it's the foods that are high in added sugar, saturated fat, these things that, you know, make foods taste, you know, incredibly good, um, high salt um, that we're consuming. There are highly processed foods that uh, are very healthy for you. Um, and, and, you know, I just gave an example of, of a few of them. It's just which ones are you choosing to consume? Most Americans are, are choosing to consume, you know, the ones that taste good. <laughs> and so, yeah. I'm going to push back a little bit though, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't call out refined grains, even though they've been fortified. I mean, it's better than non-fortified, that's for sure. But wouldn't you think, wouldn't you say whole grains are always going to be the better option? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think that's where our dietary guidelines goes wrong. I think there's one instance where our dietary guidelines is, is you know blatantly wrong and that's saying 50 percent of your grains is whole grains i think it should be 100 percent. i think the data has been there i think that refined grains you know elevate your triglycerides and um you know can uh, they, they it contributes to a lot of the cardiometabolic disease and, and cardiovascular disease that we see in the u.s i think it's it's egregious that we're still saying if only 50%. I agree with you with that. I, I was wondered why they did that. I mean, why not shoot for them? They're not, nobody's going to do a hundred percent, but if you tell them they only have to do half that, then the other half, they get a free pass for refined grains. And that's always driven me a little crazy because um, we just don't get enough naturally occurring fiber in our diet anyways. So, but so, okay, we have like a minute left. I want, want you, what are the most 
practically healthy things that you as a food scientist do? And then where can people go to learn more about you and all of your appearances and you have a book and all your blogs? And so practically healthy tip and then how to find you. Well, I think the practically healthy tip is I don't limit any food. Um, I eat what I enjoy and I try to eat in moderation and I exercise daily and I try to stay active. Um, and for the most part, you know, I try to get my five a day fruits and vegetables. And, you know, again, I try to consume whole grains. Uh, so, I mean, I think that is, you know, it, it's what works for me. Uh, and I do think it is a very personalized nutrition approach. I am also a huge proponent, I guess, conflict of interest being editor of Journal of Dietary Supplements. I very strongly believe in a daily multivitamin, uh, as well as several other types of supplements that I take. Uh, what do you daily. take? Tell us. We want to know. Uh, I take a multivitamin. Um, I take a probiotic. I take lutein because I have a history of macular degeneration in my family, and there's some really good data uh, in regard to lutein and zeaxanthin uh, on, uh, on macular degeneration. I take magnesium uh, because I know that even, you know, that I have a decent diet, I'm not getting enough uh, magnesium. Uh, I take choline rather sporadically because I am an egg eater. <laughs> um, and what else do I take? I think that's about... I think that's about it. Oh, I take a, um, a cocoa flavanol supplement, um, which is a cocoa via. It's this product that's made by Mars where they take all the antioxidants from dark chocolate. And I actually, I've been taking it for about six months. I was reading a lot of the research behind it and I decided to try it. And I actually really like it and think that it might, um, you know, uh, have some, you know, benefits in the, in the long term. And I'll of course, you drink BLK water, right? For the uh, fulvic acid. But. <laughs> I really like the taste of BLK water. I'm one of those people that I drink water all day. I work mostly from home. And I think that's an important part of, you know, nutrition is keeping yourself hydrated. And, um, you know, especially if you're active like I am. So I, I do drink a lot of BLK water um, and just water in general. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And where can people, you're on Instagram, uh, tell us where all your handles. <laughs> yeah, so my website is www.drtaylorwallace.com. You can find me on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all at the at Dr. Taylor Wallace um, uh, handle. Yeah. And just a little shout out to Forbes Advisory Board, because I know you joined the scientific board after me. And I mean, you wrote arguably the best article I've ever read on multivitamins. So for those of you who have, you know, heard that, oh, you should get everything from your diet, I really encourage you to go to ForbesHealth.com because your article was spot on and I could not agree more. So thank you so much for your for your wisdom and for the work that you do. And I'm, I'm so happy to have you as a friend and as a colleague. So thanks for joining me today and educating us about some things that maybe were not on people's radar. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward next time I'll be in California with you. Absolutely. You've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. My guest today was Dr. Taylor Wallace, America's food scientist. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. I know I did, which is always awesome for me. Please subscribe, tell your friends. I'm always open to ideas for guests or topics. And I really hope that you took to heart some of the things that uh, Dr. Taylor talked about today because, you know, 
nutrition, I, I, and I believe also just to finish off with the supplements, I know a lot of medical doctors that don't really understand nutrition are very anti-supplement, but I think smart supplementation is really part of a healthy lifestyle. So thank you for educating us on all of this and um, have a healthy day.